RJ, can you can you want to do acapella? What's low? He comes with clouds descending. Isn't that the what's the Advent hymn? Yeah. Oh yeah. come, oh come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel <laughs> that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. I think I think there's about eleven more verses you can you can. Uh, <laughs> I was like, we're all very impressed with RJ's voice because he was in like, weren't you in like the St. Thomas? Was that I was you? choir yes. band boys. Okay, yeah. well I was in the Mississippi Children's Choir, so let's not get too excited. There you go. You should have harmonized with me, Sarah. <laughs> I don't. They didn't teach that. us that in Mississippi. Didn't you harmonization? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that'll be the day when like you you do like the Darley, Dolly Parton harmonies, you know? Right. <laughs> we'll be we'll be macapella. <laughs> TJ, we're already recording. We just got a golden intro for you. I think we're going to, you can cut it up, make it, make fun of it. Uh, Absolutely. Three, two, one. Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Well, uh, thank you for that, uh, RJ. I think um, my my advent will not be the same from here on out. You have set the tone, as you often do. Happy um, to serve. Oh, well, I thought, you know, this is probably, this is going to be our last episode until the, um, until the new year, and it actually marks uh, two years since we relaunched this podcast. And so wow. I should probably say Holy thank moly. you to the two of you for, you know, showing up. It seems so much longer. <laughs> like a good marriage. <laughs> I was actually trying to go back to see what we'd done about Advent before, and like I, I get back to like Advent two years ago was the Mocking Cast rides again, and we're still riding. And uh, I, we should probably say thank you to all those who support this podcast too, because uh, you you heard uh, you know RJ's uh, appeal last week, and. Um, that is the season we're in. We're doing fundraising, but we, you know, the truth is, so many people give monthly to make this happen, and it, I, it is overwhelming and um, humbling and really touching. Uh, I f- probably should take the opportunity to give you a little update on Mockingbird. We're we're doing we're doing well, and we've got a lot happening in the new year. The main things we're working on right now, outside of keeping these our five podcasts going and our websites, we're we're actually designing a brand new website where everything will be more integrated and it'll be updated and it'll just work a little bit better. And I, I I've, I'm we're pretty close to the coding stage, actually, and trust me, it looks fantastic. The other thing is, we're gonna, we will, we do hope to have our second 365 day devotional out by the uh, by this time next year. It's a mammoth project, but I think like more than half of the entries are in. Um, RJ, I don't think you've submitted yours. Mine are not. Yes, yes. they will be though. Praise <laughs> God, I got twelve months. <laughs> <laughs> you just found out. <clears throat> yes, uh, but seriously, there isn't like a couple. There, there aren't weeks that go by at this point where we don't hear how much this uh, this silly little undertaking that we we started we restarted two years ago means to people. So, um, thank you for giving. And you know, if you're the person who you know is looking for something to support this coming year at the end of the year, we sure could use your your help. Any anything to chime in on that? No, just thanks for listening. I'm also consistently blown away when people uh, email me or talk to me at church, or just always finding out new people who are listening and and loving, and it. it's allowing them to reconnect uh, or further connect their faith in new ways. Um, and that's incredibly hopeful. So, just thanks for listening. I I think what I would want to say is in this time when everything is so divided and people have their camps that they live in um, politically and uh, in the church and often um, those two categories bleed into each other, that Mockingbird is the one thing I've seen 
that kind of manages to cross those boundaries in a really incredible way. So people who reach out to me can be on the most progressive side of things, and they can also be on the most conservative side of things. And I find that to be a little scary sometimes. (laughs) Um, But I think that's like kind of the risky love of Jesus. Um, so anyway, I, I hope people support it because it it is really astonishing to see all of the different places in the church that um, that use our resources. I mean, it's, yes. it's it's amazing. So, well, that I echo that too because I I'm I'm continually surprised by the breadth of people that listen, and I hope that means we're keeping the focus on the main thing and also having a little bit of fun because it you know as we say it's really. I've missed talking to you guys over the last yeah. couple of weeks, so like I'm, I've been excited to, to jump in and especially jump in when we've got such a, um, you know, a, a, a lob over the plate like this first one <laughs> mm-hmm. that ghost written uh, by Sarah Condon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is by uh, Gia Tolentino, who we've uh, now discussed a few times on this uh, program. She is this sort of up and coming star writer for uh, the New Yorker, uh, but this is called about the quiet protests of sassy mom merch. Yes. This is what she writes. Uh, On Etsy, as of this writing, there are more than 500 listings that mention Amazon Prime. Most are mom merch, and most of these items directly allude to survival. Prayer, dry shampoo, Amazon Prime, caffeine, Target, Amazon Prime. This, the shirts and doormats and wall hangings say, is how moms get it done. Christia, Christia Rumbly, a mother of three in Alabama who runs an online store that's called The Tiger's Trunk, told me that this mom runs on coffee, wine, and Amazon Prime, that's the slogan, was the first mom-themed t-shirt that she designed and sold in 2017. She'd seen the Amazon Prime meme on Facebook and liked it. She says, I had no idea that smart-ass mom shirts were really a thing, she told me. I sort of thought I was inventing it. The shirt sold, quote, really, really well, as did all other sassy mom merch. Then uh, Tolentino goes on to reflect. She says, social media exacerbates two competing impulses in the performance of one's everyday self, aspiration and honesty. Women in particular find these impulses rewarded on the internet, where the ever-present cultural interest in female desirability and failure in encouraging women to balance the top pedestals in part because it is satisfying to watch them fall off, is codified in the form of public comments and likes. My colleague, Carrie Batten, we talked about this actual article, recently wrote about the rise of the, quote, getting real moment for Instagram influencers, in which women who have built their public identities on meeting an ideal version of womanhood offer a moment of catharsis to their audience. All of this is constructed, they say, and it's anxiety-inducing, and there's so much that you don't see. But this form of expression doesn't seem to cut back on aspirations so much as complicated. Women are now encouraged to be both very perfect and very honest at once. In March, Molly Langmuir wrote a profile for Elle of the women behind Unicorn Moms, a community of mothers who are attempting to resist judgment in a way that nonetheless seems to be extremely judgment-conscious. The, quote, Unicorn Mom's Instagram page, which has about 90,000 followers, declares that the Unicorn Mom is, quote, not perfect, enjoys alcohol, has a sense of humor, and couldn't care less about what you think. Also, beautiful. As Catherine Jezer Morton noted in the cut, the Unicorn Moms reflected a new phase in the mom-centric internet, the construction of the, quote, hashtag perfectly imperfect mom. This mother may not be perfect, but she has tried very, very hard to be and is making peace with her, quote, limitations. Perfection, in other words, Tolentino writes, still provides the vocabulary and sets the tone. RJ, are you getting uh, one of those This Mom Runs on Coffee, Wine, and Amazon Prime shirts for Jamie for Christmas? Oh, absolutely. Top of her list. Top of her list. With rhinestones, right next to Right next to a Peloton bike? Oh my gosh, <laughs> man! Whoever came with that ad had a bad couple of weeks. Oh yeah, but uh, we found RJ's charred remains on his front yard. Exactly. <laughs> now I want I want to hear Sarah on this. I will say we we don't have a lot of mom merch in our household. We have a lot of baby merch, you know, like uh, bibs that say "Spit Happens" 
or, uh, you know, daddy's little monster, things like that. So we kind of, you know, we, we use our baby as a foil for that, that sort of thing. But, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I can see this being a big deal. It's not a big deal in our household, but I want to hear what, uh, I have some thoughts on motherhood in general, but I want to hear what Sarah has to say about sassy mom merch. Are you here for it, Sarah? What do you think? I mean, so one thing I feel like I need to say, (laughs) um, is that if you are having two glasses of wine consistently every night as a mom trying to raise kids and get up in the morning and getting people on the school bus and everything, as a mom who used to do that, um, I want to say that – I just want to say you actually don't have to do that. I just feel like that's really necessary because this um, tendency we have towards – sort of affirming a lot of drinking in suburbia and mom culture, and I've talked about it before, but I think it bears worth repeating, is a real problem. Um, because the thing, at least, that happened to me, and that has happened to some of my friends who were on that same, like, two glasses of wine every night at least train, is that you actually just don't remember parts of your kids' childhoods. <laughs> And you're kind of in a bad mood and you're really tired the next day and you have to parent. So I guess I just, I don't want to get too heavily moralistic with people. I just want to say out loud, um, you actually don't have to do that if you don't want to. And I do drink, um, but I just like, I've cut back a lot. And I think actually some of this mom culture stuff made it harder for me to cut back. Because there's such a profound, overwhelming messaging we get that way. You actually, wine is, wine and coffee is like a perfect coping mechanism every single day. And honestly, it just makes you feel like really thirsty for water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, just real talk. Um, I am fascinated. I mean, I love that she's writing about this. I'm fascinated by the Instagram moment because I'm, you know, like always on there where moms get real. Like, I would be so curious to know how many times that phrase gets used in Instagram videos because they, because it is like, they'll come on and be like, okay, guys, I want to get real with you. Okay. The house is really dirty. My kids have yelled at me all morning. I can't figure out what we're having for dinner tonight. And I just, I know that our lives look perfect, but I just, I just want to be real with you. Right. Okay. It's fascinating to me. Or they'll do this, like, I mean, the, the really like crazy ones to watch are when they're like, hey guys, I just want to get real. Sometimes marriages don't last and mine's not. And I'm like, are you like announcing your divorce on Instagram? You know, like it's crazy. Um, And I wonder, like as someone who does a certain amount of, and I know this is a word that's loaded, but vulnerability kind of speaking stuff out, you know, I mean, when we like do Mockingbird conferences, I don't do those on my Instagram. Um, I wonder actually what it must feel like to do that like to a screen and then like the, cause I don't know, like when I've been in the context of preaching or whatever, and I've gotten up in front of people and, and talked about, you know, kind of the things I failed at. Um, first of all, for me, there's always this, this knowledge that, that Jesus um, still loves me and I can take rest in that, but also I'm in front of actual people that then I can like have these conversations with who can encourage and support me. And I wonder how lonely and weird and awkward it must feel to do these kind of like mom confessional moments to Instagram followers. I don't know. I mean, it's, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I will not be getting a t-shirt that says this stuff. I was fascinated. Dave, you didn't read this part, but I was fascinated by the fact that the the writer actually brought up with one of the mothers just the like abysmal like business practices towards their employees that Amazon has and how brutal it is for them to work for Amazon. <laughs> um, and I say this as a woman sitting in front of a computer in a room full of things purchased on Amazon Prime that have to be wrapped and put under a tree in the name of our savior. You know what I mean? <laughs> But like I that's that's a little fascinating to me because we and I totally include myself in this, but Christian mom narrative, we walk this really interesting space where like we are 
you know, we're buying all this stuff on Amazon and that comes at a human cost, right? And then we're like wrapping it, putting it under the tree and Jesus is born. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones here because I totally do it too. But I think like it's worth naming. That's yeah. happening. You like know? I don't to, know. A, to a person, they all are like, listen, I know that if I looked under that rock, I'd be kind of dis- disgusted, but yeah. I simply do not have the bandwidth. I'm, hang- I'm hanging. Target. I'm hanging on by a thread. I don't. And uh, I'll just yes. have to. I'll have to re- just recycle <laughs> totally. extra or atone in other ways. I but- mean, it's yeah. No, it's impossible, but it is. It's it's interesting. Well, I, I mean, I, I I think of this as I, we've talked about it before, but it's a recalibration of the law. It's not the absence of it, and well, that's what it appears yeah. to be. It appears to be, oh, I'm going to be free. I'm going to be honest with people, but you're never actually honest about the truly shameful stuff. You never get on there. It's like I'm going to be real with you. Yeah. I pushed my kid down, and it was harder than I thought. And they started crying, and they looked at me like I had hit them, and I don't know what to do with myself. That never happens. No, and no. but that happens in real life. And yes. or or I gotta be real. I've just um, my kid used the f bomb at school, and there's there's no question that there I'm the person they learned it from. Like that, there's right. that doesn't that. Right. <laughs> and then I had to teach him what a narc is. Yeah. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> so then, <laughs> then um, so it's it's a limited. It's it's still curated. It's just curated. It's like an extra level of curation. Anytime it you're. In, Anytime you're in curation mode, you're in performance mode, you're in self-justification mode. Yeah, and that's such a good question because actually I think curating vulnerability is the most exhausting thing we do to ourselves. And insidious. Yes. Yeah, because it feels feels cathartic, but it isn't really, actually. Yeah. I just thought um, it remind the article reminded me of when my grandmother was passing away, like I don't know, 25 years ago, and my mom and her sister and her brother were there, or actually, mom and sister were there, and her brother walked in, he was kind of the jokester of the family, and was like, hey, you know, we're taking bets on time of death type thing, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the gallows humor, and, and it just reminded me of that, that I guess, you know, I feel like we say it enough, but maybe we don't say it enough. I was just thinking again, how being a mom is just about like a mom in America today is one of the hardest things I can possibly imagine, right? Like not just the physical act of having a child, which is going to be more painful and require more endurance than just about anything a man is going to do, unless he's like a Navy SEAL or does F3, Dave, like you, um, Dave stays workout regimen, you know, which is just hard to begin with. But then um, being a stay at home mom with small children is so hard it's exhausting and lonely. I mean, it's wonderful too, but you get so um, little sort of adult interaction a lot of the time in those spaces. And then the fact that it's not really enough, you also have to make money. You also have to have a job. You also have to prove that you can do it all. And so and all this- And you have this, to be hot. And you have to be hot. You know? That's right. You have to, you and know- you have to drink wine Be desirable drink to your coffee. husband. And, <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, oh I remember God. I was- when I was living in New York, I was listening to a ra- like some radio show, and they were talking about commutes, like the commutes that men had to do if they lived in like Westchester County or, or Connecticut or whatever. And someone was saying, you know, the dirty little secret is is men actually like their commutes because oh. they can take a nap yeah. on the way there, or they can play cards. I, I saw this on the train. They can play cards with their friends. They can have a drink. They can, and it's just not time they have to be at home dealing with their screaming children. You know. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to say men have it easy, but I don't want to say being a mom is so hard. And so I understand this desire for camaraderie, a little bit of gallows humor, um, you know, sub- substance use slash potential abuse. Sure, sure. Um, I, I get it. So I just want to, I just want to speak that again, especially to moms out there who are, um, I don't know, struggling to be perfectly imperfect. My goodness, oh. what a... And then on top of that, just the, the, the American dream cuts against this, right? The, the dream of single family home ownership where you have a self-contained space. I think that people who live in communal villages where grandmas or whatever are there, aunts are there to sort of help out with the kids and maybe mom can get like a little bit of time to herself and not have to pay for it. That seems like a much more conducive model for uh, mom health than sort of the independent, I'm going to do everything myself uh, type world we live in right now, and it's and also it's it's we don't live in a society where it's it's um, safe to ask for help 
you know, moms do sort of feel like they have to do it on their own, unless like last resort, like last resort, maybe you can call a friend and say, Hey, I got into a pickle. Can you watch my kids for an hour? Cause I have to get to this thing or whatever. Um, so that was my thought. It's just hard to be a mom. And I feel, I feel badly that this is the outlet, you know, it just, it's, it's uh, the outlet that people need One of to the, deal with that. <clears throat> that show, a uh, big little lies, you know, that, uh, that was sort of stars, basically every incredible, um, actress in Hollywood this one of the things that they think they show so well is that a lot of what it's hard because of society it's hard because of these things but it's really uh, hard being a mother to young children in an affluent thing uh, setting because of the other moms like they're the ones who are yeah. so ruthless with each other and oh, and and that yeah. show because of this terrible bears the murder spoiler alert that happens and they they're able to bond through that and have this sort of real vulnerability and they stop basically all judging the hell out of each other uh and it's this terrible thing that happens and it's a homicide make no mistake and yet the love that's born out in that second season of that show is all because they've had to band together and they could have been yanked out of this this event has yanked them out of that competition scenario and the men are almost largely irrelevant especially in the second season outside of the uh, the abuse that many of them suffer but it, it's it's sort of a woman's world that we're seeing it but i i do think of course in the middle of this i do think about men sarah there's a book that you and i read uh, last year i don't know if rj you got it but the, the unmade bed yeah and one of the things it says is that there's the laws uh, on on men as are are they're 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 in a different direction they're a different shape but they're constantly fluctuating this way too for the longest time men were told to never to never talk and that strength was being stoic and being quiet and never having to ask for help and that and then then sort of the second wave of feminists came along is like actually um that's a power thing you're you know you're privileged to stay quiet so we want you to talk and so men started talking and then um they started talking too much and <laughs> we were like, please stop. And then they're like, 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 well, now you're, mm-hmm. now you're mansplaining everything to us. Right. And it's like, he's taking it as a sort of like, well, fathers are trying to live up to, uh, the cultural and as well as the marital and as what their children want from them. And then there's that amazing Brene Brown thing where he's like, well, actually you don't want me to be vulnerable. My wife, right. my yeah. wife says she wants vulnerability, but when I do it, they hate it. My, yeah. my daughters. And so, um, it's this. It's this kind of. You know, this is why the message of the when we talk about the distinction between the law and the gospel and and sort of judgment and love, it it is the incubation incubator in which people actually live. This is what we're talking about. We're talking yeah, about reality. The demands put upon you by your role, by your biology, by your by economics. I don't know what it is, but there's this distinction between. The, there's always going to be some command that you are not living up to and if you're if if you're not allowed to even show that and if it's to be perfectly imperfect or it's just to be perfect just to be stoic or if it's to be vulnerable who knows but i know that the, the it's going to get vented in some way and uh, wouldn't it be great if church was the place you went with that uh discrepancy um and i think that's where i go at least you know at my best moments Yeah, I I think I just want to say one more thing about this, which is that there are a few women in my my life who model that, who are so rooted in the reality of who they are and the reality that God has covered them, you know, Um, and I think about, I think about two women, actually, I think about Emily Large, always strikes me that way, she's I mean, the groups of women she creates at churches, and she's married to an Episcopal priest, um, are so varied and so um, complicated. And Emily just navigates that room, and they want to be with Emily. And similarly is Mary's all. Like, Mm. I just, when I'm around Mary, it's like there's just such an acceptance and a true love without a judgmental spirit that... um, I not only want to be around, but want want to in these moments, you know, I, I have the same moments all the women listening have where you feel like you're at, you know, whatever school event and you don't quite belong there. And so when we, whenever we feel that way, our tendency is always to judge everyone else in the room, right? And, and instead to, to like remember that, you know, 
God justifies the ungodly, you know, and that you're in that camp too. Step, <laughs> like, in, step into being an outsider. Yeah. And you'd be a little bit okay with that. Yeah. yeah. Shepherd. So anyway, I don't know. I just want to encourage that too. Well, um, let's go from that into uh, a beautiful reflection on, uh, you know, the birth of uh, Jesus, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're in the season of Advent. Um, I sort of feel like Advent is becoming this thing that we talk about almost too much in the church, frankly, uh, because it's, uh, however, it can be really powerful. Advent is sexy now. Advent is definitely <laughs> sexy now. Talk about the ebb and flow of, of like fashion. But however, so liminal. there's something very, very uh, powerful about it. And I, it was captured by Tish Harrison Warren um, writing for the New York Times. I was not expecting to see this in the New York Times. You know, she's a wonderful writer. Uh, she wrote uh, the Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is, you know, won all these prizes. But I opened the New York Times on Sunday and I get the want to get into the Christmas spirit, question mark, face the darkness. This is uh, uh, Tish Harrison Warren. She says, for Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus's birth. The light has come into the darkness, and as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. But Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at that darkness. And we've sort of just been talking about various expressions of the darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right, and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief, and it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, and on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless, mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer. The collective lie that through enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. I'm all for happiness, joy, eggnog, corny sweaters, and parties. But to rush into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. Both darkness and light are real. And our calendar, the Christian calendar, gives time to recall both. But in the end, Christians believe the light is more real and more enduring. There is still good news to celebrate, even when, perhaps especially when, it's been a hard year. That's a great thing to to read at any time of year, I think. Um, uh, and especially, you know, we were fond of quoting Fleming Rutledge uh, when she says, "Advent begins in the dark." And if you've been to if you've been to a liturgical church or the one that follows the lectionary, you know that the readings at the beginning of Advent, the beginning of December, when everything's supposed to be getting warm and bright and it's starting to feel a lot like Christmas, they're dark, they're apocalyptic, they're kind of violent and ugly. And um, but it's this kind of countercultural pausing to um, take stock but not take stock, not to sort of just give thanks, that we've just done that in Thanksgiving, but to, to really think of the things that are not as they should be and to not not to move past them into a kind of, you know, stupor of gift-giving and, you know, uh, gingerbread lattes. But what do, you, what do you guys think? I guess I just feel like all year is Advent, to be honest with you. Like, she talks about darkness. Fleming well, I mean, uh, feels the same way, RJ. Yeah, and I'm not, um, maybe I'm the only one, I understand what she's saying about relentless positivity and needing to move from one saccharine, victorious moment to the next. Um, that certainly doesn't feel like the reality of my life. Um, so when I do get to Christmas, and let me say, my, you know, we've got three boys at, at home, and my actually my oldest, my 17-year-old, maybe loves Christmas the most. And this year was difficult because Thanksgiving came so late. And he's like, when can we start playing Christmas music? And his fall has been so, really his last like year has been so hard. 
um, that I, I held out. I just, I couldn't do it before Christmas. I think my wife played some Christmas music before, you know, um, Thanksgiving. But to have some hope and some joy and some light in the midst of, of darkness and struggle and late nights, um, I'm fine with that, you know, because again, I feel, it feels like all year feels like Advent. And then the second thing is, you know, the more I listen to quote-unquote traditional Christian Christmas carols, um, in almost all of them, like Advent and, and waiting and sin are, are baked in. You know, like maybe not the first verse, but almost always the second verse. You know, I was thinking about like joy to the world. Like, okay, the first verse, joy to the world, the Lord is come, and earth receiver king. But then the second verse, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And I find that to be the case in all these um, Christmas hymns. They're not uh, dismissive of the reality of human pain and suffering. Like they embrace that because that's what Jesus comes to to save us from. Um, and lastly, I will still say that every year, maybe it's just a symptom of my own busyness, um, Christmas still always feels like a surprise. Yes, it always feels I like totally Jesus being born into the mess. Yeah. You know, the, the surprise of a baby being born and the, the, the pangs of childbirth and the, the quietness and the... Um, there's, I just don't seem, I never get to Christmas and I'm like, uh, well, it's been a long time coming, <laughs> you know, I'm right. like, okay, like, thank God it's here. Um, cause I've needed it. And, uh, so I get what this article is saying. And at the same time, um, I'm happy to start thinking about Christmas. And like, she also acknowledges, I can't do the 12 days of Christmas thing because my kids are back to school like seven days later and maybe I'll get into that someday, but, um, I just can't wait that long, maybe. Do I do I talk now? <laughs> you, <yeah>. Please. <laughs> no, RJ, it's fine. I just I'm a little I really agree with RJ. And I think part of what we have to remember is she's writing for the New York Times. And so a lot of people reading this don't understand what Advent is, maybe, you know, like I'm fascinated. I have a friend um who is not uh Christian and she just like bought an advent calendar for her dog. And I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I mean, that's cool, but you know, Advent's like a whole thing. And so I do think Tisha's work is really important because there's a lot of people who don't know what Advent mm. is. That said, I do think there is this impulse in the church to kind of quote unquote get ready. Um, which is a biblical call, but it also for me feels like we turn it into this like as though Christmas won't be a surprise. You know what I mean? Like, I love what you said, RJ. Like, Christmas always comes as a surprise. It's always like, wait, what? Like, Christmas is here? What? Wait, tomorrow's <laughs> yeah. Christmas Eve? You know? And you're like, and you're, it's, and, and this beauty is born into the mess of what we're all experiencing. And you're not ready for it. And you, you can't read enough Advent devotionals to be ready for it. You know what I mean? Like, and you can't <laughs> think about your suffering enough to be ready. You won't be ready for it, you know? Um... I don't know. I, I I I think I think Advent is very hot right now, and there is this like impulse to. I mean, Advent has become its own marketplace, right? Like we're all buying stuff. Oh my God, we have like twelve Advent calendars in my house. Like we're all buying stuff for Advent now. You know, it's um, have we re- have we lit our Advent wreath once? No, we have not. But um, but we've eaten a lot of chocolate and put together some Legos. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I Le- think Legos isn't making the Pentecost calendars quite yet. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's something I get a little. I get nervous that we we turn Advent into its own um, burden. I yeah, I mean, I do, and and I agree with you. I think I totally know what you mean. I love what you said about the Christmas carols because I was like in the car this morning listening to Houston's own Sunny ninety nine point nine because um, they do Christmas music from Thanksgiving to Christmas all like all the time. My kids freaking love it. Like every time yes. they get in the car, they're like, "Put it on Sunny ninety nine point nine. Yes, and I mean, and there I am listening to like the cheesy radio station anyone in Houston can listen to, and you hear the verse you know, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Mm. And it's like, where else are you? I mean, that's incredible. What a gift. Fall on your knees. It says fall fall on your knees. It's like crazy. So like, I'm kind of all for that. Um, 
Yeah, I I don't know. I I also like gosh, this is getting into murky territory with uh Fleming. Um how do I say this the right way? I mean, Advent isn't in the Bible. <laughs> you fundy. Wow. I, just, I knew you're a closet Baptist. I mean, I am, and we know it. I was raised in an Episcopal church full of former Baptists, even the priests. So, but I'm a, I am get a little like, okay, every, when we talk about the 12 days of Christmas, I'm like. I'm with like, you, Sarah, 100%. Cool. I'm like, with it's, you. It's not in the Bible, though. You know, like, I think. We can make it, it's, we can absolutely make its own burden. And to, to like put us back to the first article, who does that burden always fall on? Yes. Drunk oh my mama gosh. ordering Amazon <laughs> with a coffee I've been around. That's who, you know? <laughs> like, so anyway. No, and my- I, I, I love it. I think that like it is a powerful thing for her to testify to in the New York Times that yes. Christmas is not some Pollyanna, hey, everything's great. Like, it's not divorced in any respect. Actually, it couldn't be more intertwined yes, with the darkness in the world. But I, I really think – I think it was Carl Barth who said the thing about there is no – if you really want to get down to it, Advent is the only season that Christmas Christians live in. It's the waiting. Hmm. It's the it's the second coming. And yet, yeah. my, I, I don't feel like the, the – the injunction to get ready, to be ready. Readiness is the talk about the law. I mean, have you ever you ever talked to someone who's about to get married and said, "Are you ready?" You know, like, uh, what? no, I don't think so. I don't know. Is that such a thing? Can you be ready? Are you ready? Right. Are you ready to have children? Are you ready? Right. Well, I mean, no. It, I, I one moment I'm, I'm not ready to take a shower. Right? <laughs> you know, I have any existential crisis about whether I'm going to shower. The day. truth you is, know, if you think you're ready, you're not. And if you <laughs> If you're not ready, you're probably <laughs> close to being close. And and I just need at all times of the year, I need that, you know, that what my favorite thing is that third verse of it came upon a midnight clear. The, oh, ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. I mean, that's, I'm all about that, uh, you know, from uh, Thanksgiving onward, and I also happen to be a huge Christmas music uh, fan myself. Though, you know, guys, I think that um, in in giving it its due, since we're here, last year we weren't able to really focus on what was was one of the most popular things that's gone up in our website for a long time. And by the way, Sam Bush put up something today all about Christmas carols and the sort of profound stories behind most of them because you you, you learn those stories and you're like, whoa, someone was really suffering and they didn't just come across this stuff by accident. Um, but what what I'm referring to is on our, our website is Ben Madison wrote a piece called Mary Definitely Knew, which was about that kind of, I would call it a C-tier uh, Christmas carol called Mary Did You Know? Um, and I'm going to read uh, a good deal of it. Um, not all of it, but um, I'm going to read parts of it, and then we can talk. This is how he begins. He says, they brought the baby to our doorsteps, five days old directly from the hospital, one outfit, four pre-made bottles, a handful of diapers, a package of wipes, and a packet of papers that offered no definitive judgment on the proper pronunciation of her name. A statement full of confidence backed by the full weight and authority of the state of New Jersey. Like any new parents, we waited with fear and excitement for this call. Two months since our state licensure. One year since the doctor told us we wouldn't have children of our own. Four years since we started this, quote, infertility journey. We did tests and surgeries and diets and counseling and 29 hours of state-mandated training and a home inspection. But above all, we waited and we prayed. We wanted a baby more than anything else in the world. But the reality of foster care is that it exists because the world is broken, because of child abuse, drug addiction, neglect, poverty, injustice, sin, and death. Our hope and expectation was married to someone else's shame and guilt and pain. They brought a baby to our doorstep, an answer to, but also the result of so much pain. It was all very advent And so I cry because this baby, she's perfect, and I love her, and I can't believe she's here, and my heart breaks that she can't be where she should be, that she's with us instead. People love asking, are you prepared to give her back? As if that is a normal question one might ask any new parent. 
Are you ready to give this thing you love more than you knew you could back to the uncertainty and brokenness of this world? Are you ready for her not to be yours anymore? I mean, it seems to me, though, this question could be asked of any parent. Are you ready to lose a child? Life is fragile. The world is broken. Things don't go according to plan. Seems like a reasonable question, but we don't ask it because it also seems wrong. This is why I think there's so much anxiety and hand-wringing about that song, Mary, Did You Know? Mary, did you know your son would die? Mary, did you know this child you love, more than you knew you could, would be gone? Mary, are you prepared to give him back? This Advent, it's the only thing I can think about because they dropped a five-day-old baby at my door. And for better or worse, I have fallen in love with this beautiful little girl, and I am in no way, shape, or form prepared to give her back. Mary, did you know? Of course she knew. We all knew. It's not only Mary who knew that her son would have to be given up, but the father as well. God sent his only son into the world, handing him over to the brokenness of that world, so that that brokenness could be dealt with once for all. When people ask, are you prepared to give this child back? I am reminded of Mary and of God. And of all parents, you know that one day, hopefully a day far off, that they too will have to give their children over to the brokenness and death of this world. But in that handing over, we are as ones with hope. The handing over of Jesus into the hands of sin and death opened the way for the correcting of that brokenness, the reconciliation of all things. Are you prepared to give that baby back? No. But when and if the time comes, I know I will be in good company. Those who have turned over children in the name of making things whole that are fragmented. It is in this handing over that makes possible the adoption that we experience as children of God. For now, we wait and we pray and we stay up all night and we love this tiny child more than we can love anything else in the entire world because we know all, we all know that the things we love will pass away. We know it. Mary definitely knew it. And God knew it when he gave up his only son. I mean, quite a thing to, to write. Uh, ben, has, this, this, uh, this um, short essay, Reflection, has been um, just uh, making the rounds, and I just watch as person after person just starts weeping um, as it relates to... Um, this time of year and to what it's like to have a, uh, adopt a child and to be a foster parent and to, um, you know, to simply hope in the son of God coming, you know, uh, into the darkness, this, the way that the, the love and uh, sin are so, um, and expectation and hope are so wrapped up in, uh, pain and guilt and shame. It's, I think it's it. We've talked about it the last couple times, but it almost reaches beyond uh, your faculties of reason into something more ancient, something more true. Um, so I don't know. What what are you guys? How does this connect with you? And what are your thoughts about Christmas uh, this year and about Advent? One thing I have to say because I keep thinking it is we have really good friends who actually got a baby. Um, delivered to their house on the Saturday before Easter in an Easter basket, um, who were doing the foster to adopt process. Wow. We're also priests. So, um, it's always good to know that God has a sense of humor. Oh, um, I, I know Ben and I, um, have seen, I've gotten to hold their baby. Um, she's still with them. And so I think this hits a really personal thing for me because, I think the longing part of this is so relatable. Um, honestly, we had a hard time getting pregnant. And so whenever I read these stories, it's like, oh my gosh, like it's such an impossible thing. And then it's almost like what we were talking about. Like you can't be ready for it, for this, you know what I mean? And, and then for, for a daughter to be given to you and it to be compounded with not knowing how long you're going to have her. I guess the, the, it's hard for me to talk about this without just saying like Ben and Ashley are incredible people. 
Yes. And they're incredible people to, to do this and to to love her and to love their family, um, knowing that their family may not always look like this. And they're incredibly faithful people. And we're so lucky he wrote about this. It's it's so it's so we talk about um, earlier on, we talked about uh, mothers and fathers. And I was just trying to think of the, the last time I'd read anything written by a father about infertility. It's hard enough to write. I mean, I I can't imagine how painful it is for anyone to write about this, but for Ben to do this, it's just as so courageous and inspiring. And um, also I've learned through them that um, adopted babies often, well, babies mimic parents' faces like newborns do. Do you guys know this? Like they'll try to mimic our, it's part of the reason why they get our expressions and then hmm. tend to look like us really early. But she, <laughs> Ben does this really weird thing with his eyebrows, and she does the really weird thing with her eyebrows. So anyway, <laughs> it's really beautiful. <laughs> it made me think of Toy Story 4, mm. which is one of my favorite movies from this year, which I think um, that, that whole narrative arc is so amazing. But the last one is really about um, parents giving up their children and kind of moving on with their lives. And it made me reflect on where we are with our oldest as he's preparing to head off to college and and conversations my wife has been having with other moms who have seen their kids um, go off and and the basic them basically say like it, it'll take you it'll take you at least a semester to get over it like mm-hmm. just be prepared for those first four months to be a little bit um depressed and uh, not to be um it's not the same thing you know being a foster parent and knowing that your child could be sort of taken away is not the same thing as losing your child to adulthood or college, you know, those are different things. Um, But it did also make me think, you know, as I've reflected on our own parenting and the anxiety that comes with it, the fear, and then talk to other parents about the same sorts of things, that some of that anxiety and fear is a bit chased away when you recognize that um, at the end of the day, you are only ever a surrogate parent to your children Mm. um, and that they they have a true parent, which is God. And that at some point you have to give over your child um, to God and say, look, I'll do the best I can here. I'm going to blow it. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to love this kid the way that I can. But at the end of the day, this is your child and not mine. And um, thank you for the gift um, and, I guess, the struggles of of being in their life. Um, but, yeah, to me that ties in, you know, that, that, again, Mary knew that from the very beginning, that she was this earthly mother, but he had a heavenly father who had different plans for Jesus than she might have had. But um, God's plans are better even when they're harder or we don't understand them. They're more more mysterious. And I don't know, to me, that allows me to keep a little bit of sanity in the midst of my own failure and fear as I parent. I, I you know. Yeah, I love that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I, I'm I, done. I do have to say, like, I think part of the reason Ben wrote this is because there's like this big feministy, um, which I'm a feminist, to be clear, feministy outcry against Mary, did you know? Where people have written alternative versions of it because they're like, of course, Mary knew. And <laughs> like, okay, first of all, please appreciate some nuance. You know what I mean? Before we attack things. Um, I actually love Mary, did you know? Because I think it's so staggering to imagine that she would have and that she did and that she did what she did. Do you know what I mean? Like, I actually think it's really quite beautiful. And it is it is a very, I think if we're very honest with ourselves, that's a question we ask regularly when we're in this season, which is like, how could she have known that those small arms you know, were arms that would be on a cross, like, and, and, and to, and to make peace with that and to raise him in that. I mean, it's just, so I think it's, a, I think it's a fair question. I think it's a, I think it's an okay song. So, um, I appreciated that Ben wrote this. Um, yeah. I'm always, I always think of that, um, uh, you know, that I remember watching the Passion of the Christ Gibson's movie, and I have a more favorable uh, you know, impression of that film than some people do. But um, I remember when Jesus is carrying his cross and he sees his mother and says, see, mother, behold, I, I make all things new. And he's mm. so bloodied and um, suffering. And he says this to his mother, and it's this moment of profound um, 
uh, truth, um, and yet pain and agony and the the reality of the as Ben keeps calling it brokenness, but I, I, we could just call it sin um, and sadness and grief and and just uh, the weight of the um, criminality and self-absorption and stubbornness that that God uh, to to make these things new there's 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 suffering involved there's already suffering involved and this but this connection with his mother it always makes me cry and I mean it probably helps that my own mother is named Mary but um yeah I uh, that to me um you can't kind of get around this when it when it when it comes to uh what it means i also think always the the adoption language is so pauline um you know in terms yes. of the new testament and i'll never forget i our our, our former uh, the president of mockingbird uh, the board with tom becker who he and his wife adopted a child and they had to wait years and years and just so many hoops you jump through and then really one morning you get a call and by the end of the day this child is yours and there's no divorcing like you can't it's mm. permanent and it's all the child is a baby. There's no, uh, it has, no, it plays no role outside of just being present. Um, everything is the parent to the child making this promise, like changing the status, adopting this person that you know who knows what its potential will be who knows what uh you know and, and some of these children as as ben even alludes to are the products of uh drug addiction and they're going to have real developmental difficulties and to to, mm. to to think of that in terms of what god is doing with the human race uh and the the, the surprise the suddenness the permanence the um the one wayness of it to me it's uh it just speaks of the heart of the gospel so I'm grateful for it. I also want to uh, let's let's sort of leave off from there. This is the this is the end of the year. It's the end of the decade, guys. So Whoa. I thought before we hang up, before we go off to our own eggnog and silly parties, and and also tons of church work. I know that you guys have in front of you, but any closing recommendations thoughts moments to lift up i mean i'm just curious about your end of the year uh, reflections or um it can be as silly as you gotta watch uh, uh fleabag season two or it could also be as have <laughs> i mean shit's creek is what you gotta watch but yeah fleabag season two <laughs> jamie well. loves that show <laughs> so good obsessed um so i just had a couple of things i was gonna raise up i think i mentioned this book uh maybe in the magazine but the dearly beloved by carol wall is one of the best books i have ever read it is a uh, an account of these two Presbyterian ministers who uh, co-lead a Presbyterian church in the 1960s. And one of them is very social justice minded, and he's married to uh, literally um, a Mississippi girl whose daddy was a preacher. And um, one of them is like very devout and academic, and he is married to a woman who's an atheist. And the way that it is written from such a beautifully non-judgmental perspective, but really talks about these people's lives in faith or lack thereof and why there's a lack is so powerful. So anyway, I just, I want to recommend that if I, if I had the money, I would literally buy every clergy person in America a copy of it because it was so comforting in some ways to hear my own story told back to me. And um, I would also just say this book was on the Today Show. So it's very like not, it's not a super Christian book in a lot of ways, but I think that's what makes it so beautiful. Um, I also just want to raise up my other favorite podcast, uh, actually, this is my favorite podcast that I'm raising it because I don't listen to ours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no surprise there. Crazy <laughs> if I had to listen to myself. Uh, Sean of the South, I cannot recommend enough. There's this guy, Sean Dietrich, who does it, and it is um, incredibly beautifully done. I mean, he talks about the South, but in in such a way that there's so much grace and so much acknowledgement and um, a tremendous amount of humor. It's a wonderful show to listen to with kids in a car. So if you're Christmas, you're driving, you need a show. Shaun of the South is excellent. Um, and I think the moment I just wanted to raise up from this year actually is the moment when um, Brant Jean hugged his um, brother's murderer 
Mm. I, I think that's really worth, um, that was such a powerful moment and such an, a fascinating moment in American culture because I'm not sure I've seen so much, I mean, we talked about it, but so much relief and joy and embrace and forgiveness so quickly followed by this is not okay. What he did is not okay. You know, we're, we're not okay with this. Um, and I think for me as a Christian and as a, a, a pastor, I learned so much in those 48 hours about just how much we need forgiveness and how angry it makes us. So. Dave, you'd asked the things this year we're most thankful for. So in terms of kind of pop culture artifacts that were meaningful to me, it's sort of, and I, I abreacted to, to, you know, borrow a word that your dad uh, likes a lot. And I love that word. Um, I don't Toy know Story what 4. Means. Okay. You don't, well, things that you, you know, uh, connected with your own emotionality in a way okay, that was good. helpful and cathartic. Abreact is one of those words way. people say, and I'm just like, yes, yes. I'm going I'm to use all the context to figure out what the hell that word means. Okay. Thank you. Arby. Yes. So things I abreacted to. Uh, Chernobyl was mm. helpful, believe it or not. Um, Toy Story 4, again, uh, very helpful. Third uh, season of The Crown. And uh, the podcast startup wrapped up this year. And that was, um, you know, I wrote a piece for the Mocking Mockingbird website a while ago about church planting. And when I first came to Houston in the aftermath of having planted a church, startup came on. And so much of what they went through on their road to starting a company mirrored what I went through trying to start a church. Now they sold Gimlet for $200 million to Spotify. So it worked out better for them. Um, but, but still that's, that's been um, powerful for Riches me. Riches in whole heaven, way. RJ. Riches in heaven. Well, and I still will say to anyone who is starting something, a ministry, a business, whatever it is, listen to the startup podcast. Cause it is um, beautiful and wonderful and vulnerable and, and true. Um, then the second thing I'm thankful this year, and this might just be the little bubble that I'm Christian bubble I'm living in, but it, it feels like it's kind of okay to be a Christian again, or that Christianity is, um, is being acknowledged as potentially good mm. by secular culture in a way that it hasn't been for a while. Mm -hmm. And I think about the Dominion book from Tom Holland. I think about Bart Ehrman, The Triumph of Christianity, even though that was last year. I think about the fact that that piece showed up in the New York Times or that yeah. New York Review of Books article we talked about a couple weeks ago, which was incredible, or the fact that N.T. Wright and Tim Keller both showed up in The Atlantic in the last couple weeks. Yeah. Or even Dave, honestly, the traction your book has gotten, yes, and I was the the, say, the, the best the, the yeah. bestseller lists, or not the bestseller, but the the recommended reading lists it's been on from people who are not Christians. That um, I feel less nervous to invoke the name of Jesus right now than I've felt maybe ever, and maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just more comfortable, or again, maybe it's the bubble I live in. But suddenly, it feels like secular voices are saying, "Wait." maybe there is something valuable to Christianity. Maybe, and, and also there was, you know, something I saw a couple weeks ago, I think it was Wall Street Journal, which it said, you know, does it feel like Mr. Rogers and Dolly Parton are everywhere? Mm. You know, because they are. And it's it's like, yeah, they are. But those are two profoundly Christian people who a lot of their art and their person had come is a result of their faith in Jesus. And they are everywhere. And sort of um, maybe we live in such divided, acrimonious times that people need a little bit of, of grace and forgiveness and healing. So what? that's the second uh, thing. Oh, Dave, you were going to say. I was saying, I wrote a thesis in college about the historical memory around Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they said that, you know, for mm. the longest time after the Second World War, Germans could not engage with anyone of their own past in a positive mm. way at all, uh, especially mm. if that person was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and had anything to do with sort of what would be construed as Aryan. And then finally, a, a measure of the healing would be when they finally be able to embrace some of the good, you know, the, the heroes like a Bonhoeffer who actually come from that context. In America, I'm mm. always thinking of like, you know, we've had to, the only, for a long time, it sometimes felt like the only 
Christians it was safe to like in a sort of a time of identity politics would be minorities and, you know, um, and folks that are sort of bringing Christianity in from a different context. And, and, and that's all well and good, but to see people be able to identify Dolly Parton as a Southern white lady and Mr. Rogers as a sort of a, the, the definition of sort of a white bread, uh, you know, grandfatherly type boomer. Boomer. (laughs) It it, it may show that things are not quite as bad. Uh, We're starting to readjust our view of history as not just being the history of the terrible things that uh, uh, my own people, my own heritage have done inflicted that there might've been some good things too, because if you're just one, if you're seeing only good or only bad, then you're being completely dictated by some sort of ideological or emotional reaction, I think. So I find that to be actually hopeful, but I'll echo one thing that you guys have both said, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of quizzical about it because I I still think it's a liability to be a, a Christian. It, feel, it feels to me that way in certain uh, I you know in Charlottesville, which is very um, progressive and and very kind of uh, has only negative associations in certain contexts. I have to. They're like I remember overhearing someone recently be like, "Oh yeah, that's Dave. He's the priest guy, but he's actually really great." You know, and it's like it's like <laughs> yeah, a exactly. I'm not a priest and I'm not and I'm not, I'm not that great. You're not, but I. <laughs> You don't know me I'm interested well. in why you feel like that the fact that I work for a church means that I'm by definition like a jerk or uh, no fun. Anyway, that I don't think has gone away. However, this is Dave. He's a Christian that doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am very interested in the fact that the three, the four things that have hit me and my heart at, on a faith level the most this year have all come from England. Um, and I, yes. you know, my old, yes. my younger brother lives in England and has lived there for a long time, and we lived there for a while as a kid. And you know, as much as I, I'm such an Anglophile with my love of you know, Brit pop and Oasis and Morrissey and things like that. Uh, I've kind of started over the maybe the last ten years after hearing my younger brother complain about, uh, you know, the the peculiarities of sort of aggressively secular Britain and all this post-Christian stuff that I've, I've kind of closed myself. My Anglophilia has, has receded. And then this year to have the things that have spoken to me on a Christian level, and by that I mean the third season of The Crown, yes. uh, which especially that episode Moondust as a, as a man, uh, as a human being, but as a man, the, the moment with Prince Philip in the end, and the moment of... And, and church, because church is such a, a difficult subject for so many of us, and to see that portrayed as something both recognizable and good was kind of—it uh, just was completely surprising. The a second season of Fleabag, now I know it's completely Marvel. profane and all this stuff, but I felt that the context of religion having something real of, of to offer, and that the fact that she not only didn't dumb down the priest character, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but she she kind of put all the best lines in his mouth, and he was, again, a recognizable human being uh, who had profound, you know, blind spots, but really profound, uh, uh, sincere faith, and that was motivating him mm. to not be a judgmental, you know, jerk, but to be a person of great service and humility and and and, and humor. Um, I found that to be surprising and uh, um, encouraging in a deep, deep way. And then there's that Tom Holland book about Dominion, which yeah. is basically one long <clears throat> apologetic for what's good culturally, historically about Christianity. It's not a theological book. And then the the best book novel I read this year was um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, who is a more British novel could not exist. And she's the daughter of a Methodist minister, I believe. And um, it's sort of about re-enchantment, but there's a ton in there about... um, uh, you know, the, not just good versus evil, but um, uh, institutions uh, versus creativity and uh, healing and hope. And I found that to be, um, I, I'm puzzling over it. Why is it that the gifts that were given to me this year all came from this quote unquote super secular England? And um, I didn't find the same connection with American culture. So that's a that's a both exciting thing and a, something I'm just continuing to think about. Um, another thing I'm grateful for. Uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. 
that's that's enough. There's 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 so much out there. I needed a respite from dark television. I feel like I found like I, I love mm. television, but I also it's gotten so dark that I, I that. think it's much more of a creative risk these days to show wholesomeness in a in a realistic way, which I think we were seeing. I mean, the Phoebe Waller Bridge. Bring back Friday she, Night Well, Life. she says that the second season of Fleabag is all about a woman being healed. And um, I, I kind of, and it's also hilarious, but, and clearly The Crown, there's, it's tapping into something eternal and beautiful yes. and flawed. And it's not just costumey. I mean, it's, it is that. It's all those things. So anyway, I, there are real signs of life. And I'm, I am grateful for the reception the book has gotten. I, I, um, I, I I had a I was hoped that it would do well, but not not this well. So um, I think we've got a, a the audiobook is coming out here any week now, probably before Christmas. Oh, nice. It's not written. Are you reading it? Uh, no. So that's oh, uh, I'm I'm as interested as anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the, like, is it Forky? There'll be a paperback. Oh man, Tony. <laughs> Wow. So that's me. Um, I'm grateful for the two of you. I'm grateful we get to do this. It's Great such a labor of love, too, as, as we say. So It's fun. So I'm not going to say happy Advent to you both. I'm going to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes, too. And a happy Talk new year. Talk to you in mm-hmm. 2020. What? Awesome. Yeah. Next decade. See you next bye, decade. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.